Welcome to the Disarming Leviathan podcast. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with John Ward, the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. John has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including as a White House correspondent traveling aboard Air Force One and as a national affairs correspondent writing about two presidential campaigns. John hosts the Lawn Game podcast. He's also written for Washington Post, New Republic, Politico, Vanity Fair, HuffPo, and others. Uh, But related to our interview today, he is the author of Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. This is an excellent book. It chronicles his upbringing and experience within evangelical spaces, as well as the intersection of American Christian nationalism and American evangelicalism. Uh, This is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And he'll touch on a lot of uh, what's in the book in our conversation today. So without further ado, here is my interview with John Ward. John, talk to us a little bit about your experience and perspective on the culture wars of the 80s and 90s and how that got us to today. Sure. Thanks um, for having me on. I graduated high school in 95 just outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And so my first exposure to, I would say, culture war type evangelicalism and politics was probably seeing faxes to my dad's office from Ralph Reed and Gary Bauer. Gary Bauer ran for president in 96 in the Republican primary, and he was – headed a group that I can't remember the name of. He might've been a family research council, actually. Anyway, he was like the Christian conservative candidate. Ralph Reed was adjacent to him, may have worked with him at one point. These guys were, were building lists and sending out sort of a, a weekly, I think probably communication about issues that conservative Christians should be paying attention to and, and how what they should be thinking about these issues. Uh, the other sort of big factor at that point in the in the mid '90s, you know, Bill Clinton was president, and my dad would sometimes listen to Rush Limbaugh in the car. I had a very negative reaction to Rush Limbaugh because I could see he was entertaining, but it it was um, the entire tenor of everything he talked about was how much he hated the Clintons, and it didn't appeal to me to just have a political worldview that was oriented around who I didn't like. And actually just to skip forward for a second, that continued because when I was first in journalism in the mid early two thousands around about there, I was at the Washington times conservative newspaper. I got somehow linked up. I think somebody knew I wanted to work on books and and write my own at some point. And so they linked me up with a guy who was writing anti-Clinton books for the American Spectator, a conservative outlet. The guy's name is is escaping me right now. It'll come back to me. But the entire, again, I was so turned off by just the way people seem to be obsessed with just opposing people and critiquing and being against things. It was just really gross. (laughs) And that is kind of the flavor that I got from Gary Bauer and, and Ralph Reed was, you know, and it really was in sync with the church life 
that I was a part of, which is the big bad world is out there. Most everybody outside our church is just, they're terrible. And, you know, if, if we don't defend ourselves, they're going to get us. And so we've got to, you've got to give us money and vote for us and we'll go out and fight those bad guys on your behalf. And you can stay in church and, you know, keep singing those songs, but send us the donation. So that was kind of my view of the, of the Christian coalition and the moral majority and whatever in the nineties and into the early two thousands. And I actually went to passion 98, the, the conference that started in Austin and is now in Atlanta. That's run by Louis Giglio. And um, I was there with CJ Mahaney uh, who brought me along. Cause I was kind of being recruited to be a, a leader in our church and Josh Harris was there. Josh Harris started his own conference in Baltimore as a result of going to that. And I write in the book about how Passion and Chris Tomlin and Giglio and all these guys were kind of a precursor and probably an inspiration in some ways for then what became Bethel and Hillsong, which really kind of took the musical sophistication to a new level and really became the soundtrack for, I think, millions of Christians around the world in their everyday lives. And it is actually like a lot of the music is really, really good. I get it. Why people love it. I've, I've kind of lost my taste for it, but at a certain point in my life, I really did enjoy it. But the reason I've lost my taste for it is because it just signals to me a a lot of things that I now find pretty unhealthy. And um, one of those things is an engagement with the world outside of church that is not really working for the good of our neighbor. I would say in, in a very succinct summation, we can go further down that road if you want. Yeah. So in your book, you do such a great job highlighting the culture warring conservative, uh, you know, Christian coalition, moral majority, and, and primarily those were, you know, white men in suits who were palling around with different conservative politicians. And there was, there's this, conservative behavior that was part of it, a conservative look, you know, they looked like church people. Yeah. Um, and you talk about how now the aesthetic has changed, but the, the foundation is the same. You know, there's people with tattoos, you know, there's nose rings, there's some people drink beer now. Uh, and yet the foundation of fundamentalism is still there. And even within these movements like Hillsong, Bethel, some of the folks that have come out of that have, uh, gone full bore in alignment with uh, American Christian nationalism. So leaders like Sean Foyt, who was part of, I believe, the Bethel movement, is now touring the country, part of a lot of these uh, Christian nationalist uh, conferences and festivals, on a stage saying, uh, I'm a proud Christian nationalist. God wants us to do that. We need to take over. And sometimes they'll even use language like dominion. We need to take dominion. Talk a little bit about uh, dominionism. What What is that? Uh, and what do people mean when they say we need to take over or take dominion? A lot to chew on there. Um, I will say, I think, you know, I, I knew Lou Engel a little bit when I was a kid, really. And then I, I met, I interacted with him once or twice when I was an adult. Guys like him, I don't know. I hadn't, I interacted with Cheyenne when I was a kid, not really since then. Those guys who are very influential in the New Apostolic Reformation, they strike have have struck me over time as pretty sincere, and um, and I'm always hesitant to 
to call out or question people's sincerity. But I have to say, Sean Foyt, his modus operandi really does to me call into question his sincerity because his entire model for public ministry over the last few years has been to be as provocative as possible to draw attention to himself to build his career. Very little evidence that I can see of him seeking to bring peace and healing to our culture. Um, It's a very Trumpian model for building a brand and a career and a, and a business, uh, which, you know, he does solicit a lot of donations. Um, but you know, he, Sean and, and Lou and, and Shay are part of this new apostolic reformation. They might not identify as NAR members, but if you really want to go deep on this, you've probably done this, but the uh, charismatic revival fury podcast series by Matthew Taylor Google that phrase, Charismatic Revival Fury. There's an eight podcast series that he did. Absolutely fantastic academic historic storytelling about the roots, the history, and the connections of the NAR. And he explains how, you know, the seven mountain mandate was something that some Christian leaders, the founder of uh, Maybe Young Life, and uh, I'm, I'm blanking actually on the, on the leaders who started it, but these were not super right-wing guys. They were very conservative, but they were talking about this Seven Mountain Mandate. And, and Taylor in this podcast series does a really great job of, of tracking how when they started talking about it in maybe the late 90s or early 2000s, it was more in a sense of Christians should go out into the world and work in these seven areas of culture you know, politics, business, media, etc., and be salt and light, essentially, and influence the world for good. And in Taylor's telling of the story, it's Lance Wall now, who closer to, you know, 2008 and the Obama election, starts to talk about the Seven Mountain Mandate in a way that is more about ascending to the tops of these mountains and gaining control of them and imposing a way of life on others through control and power. Really, I think a very important key distinction in how we talk about these things, because quite personally, I went into journalism in 2001. I was age 24 and everything in my background, everything that had shaped me, um, I wasn't aware of the seven mountains mandate as an idea, but that was my paradigm for calling in vocation. Go out into the world, influence it for good, be in these areas of influence, and bring your faith to bear in a way that serves your neighbor and works to the good of all. Um, and that is a way of preaching the gospel. And, uh, and that's shifted a lot around the last 15 years. And then, you know, that, I think that helps explain why for some of the most hardcore evangelical Christian Trump supporters, especially from this network of leaders that constitute the NAR, I think that helps explain their thinking for why they would call or compare Trump to King Cyrus in the Old Testament, because he represented a leader who may not have been from them, but was with them and could take control of the political quote unquote mountain 
and help them impose their view of the world on others. And, you know, it's to be determined how influential these folks are going forward. I'm don't have a clear sense of it myself, but they certainly mobilized a lot of support for Trump and were and were quite involved in the events leading up to January 6th, the Jericho marches around the country and in DC, as well as the rally near the White House, I think a I think a month before January 6th, December 12th, um, where it was just all kinds of religious syncretism and just craziness. And then even on January 6th, there was quite a few people from this movement there. So this idea of taking power, um, it's, it's one thing for, for many evangelicals, we hear things like, you know, we need to reach the city or we need to reach the country or we need to, you know, uh, take DC or take Phoenix for Christ. These are common uh, mm-hmm. phrases that you'll hear in evangel- evangelistic crusades. It sounds like what you're talking about, though, is like actually taking over not influencing or sharing the gospel or being known by humble service, but rather clawing our way to the top of political economic power so that we can force our influence on other people. So it's almost like a top down as opposed to a bottom up type influence. Is that a fair assessment of this shift to taking dominion or taking power? That is a fair assessment of what some leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation are saying. And I think that why it's important to talk about this is because I don't think that the majority of Christians in America or the world, I don't think this would pass the smell test with them if they really thought about it. Because I don't think it coincides, I don't think it coincides with the faith that they know, love, and practice. But these leaders are are of a different mind. And their ideas need to be treated seriously. Um, They need to be treated with a certain amount of respect as individuals. And their followers absolutely do because the problem is there's too much, as you said, derision for these ideas. And for even if you think they're crazy and, and for people who believe in them and that kind of scorn I think just shrinks the amount of space at the table that everyone else is having a conversation at about the common good and and political engagement in public affairs. It shrinks the amount of space at the table for, I think a lot of people who might not find this a viable option unless they were pushed to it by feeling like, well, this is the only place that welcomes me. Yes, absolutely. The, Call of Christ is the call to the table and inviting people to follow the Jesus way, not dominating over them or shaming them into it or pressuring them into it. And this definitely applies to American Christian nationalists, especially the ones that are closest to us, which we can oftentimes be tempted to feel ashamed of, feel, you know, outraged at just because we want them to see it the way we want to see it or the way that we see it. Uh, In your book, you share a little bit about that experience with your own family. Would you share a little bit with us about how Christian nationalism and all this uh, uh, NAR stuff um, has impacted you and your family? Yeah. First of all, I would say, I I don't think anybody who's been paying attention for the last couple of decades should be surprised that 
Christian nationalism is such a big deal now because it's really been in the DNA of evangelicalism for a very long time. I think Kristen Dumais' book did a good job of demonstrating that as well, and there's others too. Um, it's not a new thing. It's just maybe more explicit now. Um, but yeah, our family, I was um, sending emails to them back in 2016. I've, I've used a metaphor for 2016 that I'll try to, I'll try to relate it r- really concisely. I don't want to ramble on about it, but I think everybody who was in politics at that time, and this could be journalists, it could be lobbyists, it could be Hill staffers, it could be elected members of Congress or state legislatures or governors, senators, staffers. I mean, just anybody who's who works in politics and is around it all the time and is on the playing field or closely watching the playing field. I think you could compare them to NFL football executives in in a film room, maybe prepping for the draft. And they've watched and played football for, for years. So when they watch a play on, on the screen start to unfold, they can anticipate how it's going to happen. They can kind of see around the corner. And so all of those people in politics, and I say this as somebody who was, you know, intimately involved in talking to people and reading and observing pretty much that entire universe of people in 2016 left, right, center was saying that Donald Trump was a threat to democratic stability and the rule of law and the basic structure of how we preserve the rights of everyone in this country and how we reach agreement over disagreement or through disagreement peacefully rather than through violence. And so I was one of many, but I was one of those people kind of sounding the alarm then. And some of that was public and some of it was in private emails to my family. And um, the other thing I would say about this is that it had nothing to do with partisanship, political parties, Democrat, Republicans, uh, had nothing to do with ideology other than a belief and a, and a love for uh, the, the core of the idea of what America is, which is a place where all peoples and faiths can come and have these fundamental rights of speech and conscience and religion and assembly and attempt to seek redress from the government. It's a place where we can, as I said, try to work through our disagreement peacefully. So it was from that, a love for that, that I was sounding the alarm about Trump, not because I care whether he's a Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal. But a lot of my critiques were received by family and friends as partisan. And they began to kind of label me as liberal because of those critiques, which I would argue is sort of a way of taking an uncomfortable critique and putting it in a box that allows you to not have to think about it anymore. Um, And so that continued through 2015, 2016, and into the Trump presidency. And there were moments of higher conflict throughout those four years and a lot of stretches of just relationships kind of, you know, sinking into stasis and um, growing stale or growing cold, probably. Um, And then, you know, the, the election of 2020 and the avalanche of lies that Trump told about voter fraud leading up to the election and a stolen election after the election. And then 
what happened on January 6th really kind of, you know, brought our family to a breaking point. And it's a longer story and you can read about the details in the book, but that is essentially what happened. And maybe I'm skipping ahead here, but something you said just now made me think of it. The biggest thing that's changed for me when I, and I think it goes to this issue of showing respect for people. The biggest thing that I think that has changed in my approach is that I, in 2015 and 16, there was a definite sense of this cannot be happening. And now my, my mentality, my, my attitude is very much that this has happened. It is happening. It could continue to happen. And having a sense of being surprised or shocked or angry about it, a um, little bit of anger maybe, but those things are not super productive or helpful in, in trying to work towards a solution. So thinking about when we're engaging our family members who are all in for whoever the leader is, but the all in for the movement of whether you call it Christian nationalism or something else, we're, we're sitting at the 4th of July, you know, barbecue, the Thanksgiving dinner, the, you know, 12 year old's birthday and this loved one that we have, they just start in on this terror, you know, uh, they're, they're argumentative, they're saying outrageous things, they're saying hateful things. How would you coach us on how to respond? And also, how would you coach us on how to decipher what they're saying? Uh, you mm. talked in the book uh, about listening and the importance of listening with, without the intent of just arguing, but listening with the intent of understanding. And so you've got this unique experience, not only within your own family, but also as a journalist. So coach us through the, that moment, right? Where that, that Thanksgiving dinner, the kid's birthday party, how can we better listen? How can we better listen? And then also respond with compassion and respect. I think one of the tough things about these situations is that it's not just us and the other person in the room. There's usually an audience and the audience usually involves our kids. That's the one that sticks out to me, our kids, you know, I would say I don't have a lot of the answers here and the answers I do have, I've certainly struggled to, to do it myself, you know? Um, but the one thing that I have found to be really interesting is the way that our bodies hijack our, our responses. And that's just a function of when our ego gets ensnared in what's happening. You know, your heart rate goes up, your temperature spikes, your thinking gets sped up. And pretty soon you're jumping in and, and interrupting. Um, voices are getting raised. And so not to say that there's never a time for that, but it's usually not. A, <laughs> those moments are not usually a time of, uh, you know, mutual understanding or, or, or things moving forward or people growing in, in relationship or, or growing in a better understanding of what's happening or how we, how the other person thinks. So I do think it is important though, to like, to keep two things separate because there's two realms of communication, at least one would be public and one would be interpersonal and private or at least interpersonal. And, you know, in the interpersonal, I think the, the priority is the relationship. And I think the public one, I think the, the goal is to, you know, this is on TV, it's on radio, it's in politics. It's a very, I, I don't think we have the same, set of um, principles or, or standards. I'm not saying you can be 
you should be rude or, or nasty. But that is a moment for debate and argument, usually not with a, with a mind to persuading your opponent even, but just to hold, you know, presenting the best argument that you can. So those are, it's important, I think, to keep those two different scenarios in mind. But in those interpersonal, you're kind of talking about the interpersonal relational conversation. And um, I think, you know, I think my mindset is I'm just, I'm just not, I don't see a lot of upside in arguing or debating with people, especially on these topics in these times. I, I, I just struggle really, other than to kind of think about the audience of my children that's the only thing that would really motivate me to push back at all. And um, my personal proclivity would be to change the subject, ask questions about why they think that to a point, if they're willing to answer those questions or just leave, because I, I just don't, you know, something I've struggled with is I feel like you could, I feel like there's a way to kind of, try to redirect the conversation to written texts, but that's hard to do in a, um, like a kinetic situation. But if, if there is ever a way to say, Hey, why don't we read this book together and then get together and talk about it? That's definitely, I think healthy. And then I think the, the best way to approach those settings where you do talk about a book is just ask questions and like always come back to the text and always ask questions based out of the text and out of their responses to the text, because the most unhealthy thing is when people st- start just flinging statements around that have very little grounding in research or data or fact. That that's really when you're you're in the in the realm of just ego and you're just saying whatever you need to say and I just I have very little interest in that. Yeah, that's so good. Even thinking about uh, something you said earlier about there's this barrage in uh, social media, news outlets, uh, public officials, pundits, this barrage of misinformation or just statements that call into question any sort of data. And part of that is also undermining of uh, journalism and the integrity of journalistic institutions that we've seen that in full effect over the last few years, especially. Uh, many of the I, I, many of the people in our mission field are using language that they've picked up from certain leaders, like the, that's you know that's my truth or that's fake news or that's you know whose truth are you talking about? Especially when it comes to journalism, help us understand how can we trust when we think yeah. about journalism, when we think about even which books to pick. Coach us through how can we, who, who, what do we look for? How do we discern? Is this trustworthy or not? Um, There's so much misinformation. Of course, the QAnon phenomenon is in full effect. How can we discern uh, when it comes to the journalistic enterprise? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it's one that lots of people have been asking and are asking. I've written a couple of things about this, which you can probably find pretty easily by Googling uh, survival guide for normal people. And I've written part one and part two, and, and these were years ago, but this was kind of a grab bag of recommendations. You know, one of which was 24 hour rule, you know, don't just give yourself 24 hours before you form an opinion about most things that are happening in the news, you know, breaking news types events, especially, um, 
I'm not even saying like your view on what should happen. I'm saying give yourself 24 hours to decide whether that thing that you heard actually is a thing. And, and sometimes the, 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 one of the contributors to the problem of this has been the press with like running with stuff too quickly. This happened a lot during Trump. Like there would be a, an overreaction to something he said or something he did or the, the post or the times who I generally support and, and defend, but they did get over their skis quite a bit. I feel like especially early days, the Russia stuff, which yes, there was, you know, Russian attempts to interfere in the election, but the, the collusion stuff was oversold and overhyped by the press for sure. But, you know, that, that whole 24-hour rule could apply to pretty much anything. And it's just an attempt to get us to slow down um, before we take anything that's out there in the news and put it into our storehouse of what we know, what we take to be true. And then the one that I did that was part two was, I think, the summer of 2020 when a leader from Bethel Church named, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, um, he was on Instagram kind of doing a lot of QAnon adjacent type stuff around child trafficking. And I talk in the survival guide for normal people part two, just about stuff like insinuation and the need for facts to back up claims or even in, in, in to, to know that like when you see an insinuation, but it's doesn't have any supporting facts, like you should, your you should, red flag should go up. But, you know, I'm, I'm planning to work on a, a practical guide on this stuff, hopefully with a, with another author who wrote a whole book about that, the issue of discernment in the news. But yeah, I think like slowing down and finding trusted experts are helpful because all of us have limited time. We can't, most people can't do what I'm paid to do, which is spend all my time trying to figure out what's real and what's not. And so I think another thing people can do is just recognize that there are people who are doing this work in good faith. I would say that I'm one of them and I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying like, this is my job. I get paid to do it. I've been doing it for two decades and, and you know, they pay us <laughs> to go out and figure out and spend a lot of time like figuring out uh, what the facts are on this stuff and to sort through all of the spin from the politicians and the corporate interests and to try to help people understand what's actually happening. Because, it, you know, one of the amazing things about journalism is that it teaches you complexity and the complexity is often more than just, you know, there's a lot of sets of facts here. It's how do these facts interplay with the context? How do the facts interplay with the players and the interests and the incentives. So there's a lot at work in these situations in politics. And there are people who it's their job and has been for a long time to figure it out and, and tell you what's going on. And if you don't, you know, if you don't want to listen to just one outlet or two outlets, you can certainly diversify your diet, but, you know, look for those um, sources of information. That's so good. Thank you. John, uh, tell us where we can find your work. You've recently published a book called Testimony, uh, which I would highly recommend all of our listeners get a copy of that. Uh, but where can we find you and your work? Sure. The website that is uh, my author website has links to just about everything, including my Twitter and my Substack, which comes out right now once a week on Fridays. And that, that website is just johnwardwrites.org. 
That's J-O-N-W-A-R-D-W-R-I-T-E-S.org. And then if you just Google John Ward Yahoo, all my stuff for Yahoo comes up there. And I think that pretty much covers it. The website, the author website also has a link to my podcast, The Long Game, which I'd love to have uh, you on and talk about your forthcoming book. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah. so what's the name of your podcast once more? Uh, that's called The Long Game. Perfect. And the, the sub stack is called Border Stalkers, which is, I like that name. That's a great name. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Well, John, thank you so much again for being on uh, the Disarming Leviathan podcast. I really appreciate it. Caleb, thanks for having me, and um, thanks for all the work you're doing on this. It's great.